This is Lee Wilkins, your co-host for Thinking Out Loud, and this evening we're going to be talking about music with Professor of Music Paul Crabb. Uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about vocal music and within that Baroque music, which is played a lot at this time of year, but also uh, is part of a standard repertoire that when you think about all the additions of jazz and rock, maybe doesn't get revisited enough. So Dr. Crabb, welcome to Thinking Out Loud. Thank you, Lee. It's so good to be here. Okay, so I do want to start a little bit with just some definitional work, if you don't mind. So when we talk about Baroque music, what are we talking about? Well, generally, we divide music into specific periods. So Arbitrarily, we go 1400 to 1600 for Renaissance and 1600 to 1750 for Baroque, 1750 to about 1820 or so for Classical, 1820 to 1900 roughly for Romantic, and then 1900 to the present would be Contemporary. Okay. And so um, I'm going to make some assumptions here, and then you're going to correct me. Okay. So it's not the symphony orchestra that we see with Beethoven that is the instrumentation for Baroque music. So if I'm listening to Baroque music, what sorts of instruments am I more likely to hear, and how are they related to what I'm likely to be seeing or hearing in the present day? Well, there was probably, at that stage, there's more use of stringed instruments. Uh, I don't mean more use than in romantic, but that carried the bulk of the load. Mm -hmm. The wind instruments were much less developed, so you didn't have things like trombones. You wouldn't hear that. You didn't have things like tubas, of course. Um, Even the horns and early trumpets were just different in that they were natural, didn't have valves, so they had much more limitation to what they were able to play. Uh, You certainly will hear trumpets. We just did the Bach uh, Magnificat, for example, and the trumpets have a prominent part in that. But that's late Baroque. In general, the wind instruments will have a smaller role to play, uh, even though, as as the the wind instrument players will tell you, they're important roles. (laughs) Well, of course they are. (laughs) There are no small parts, only small musicians, right? right? I think I'll steal that from a theater line. Um, I also associate Baroque with um, some specific composers, and I suspect many people do. But when I think about Baroque composers, I obviously think about Bach. But I mean, I know there are, I mean, senior and others, but I know there are many others. So in that repertoire, at least on this side of the Atlantic, mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. are we more likely to be hearing? Well, in terms of composers, you're right. Bach is sort of the, the major bookend. He and Handel were contemporaries, of course, uh, that Handel was in, in England, a transplanted German in England. Uh, and Bach was, of course, in Germany, or what is now called Germany. So those are sort of that he, those two were sort of the bookends in the end of the of the Baroque era. Uh, you have in Italy, Vivaldi is a name that you often hear. Of course, uh-huh. the the Four Seasons are, are a piece that is often uh, played and people recognize. Uh, early on, the name Monteverdi. I think would be recognizable to many people. And Monteverdi is often sort of looked at as somebody who. Uh, perhaps bridged the Renaissance to the Baroque. Uh, He was living in a place, uh, that place being Venice later in his life, where they had so much wealth and so much influence from the East uh, because of all of the trade and the situation with Venice being uh, on the water, right now literally on the water. Or underwater in some ways. (laughs) But they had a little bit more independence from the church, and so they were able to do things in a bigger, more grand way and so he just really sort of pushed the, the the forefront from the Renaissance, said, no, we could do this, and we could do this, and very uh, grandiose and the kind of productions. 
And um, so you you mentioned the church, which is, I think, what many people, at least I do when I think about Bach, I think a lot of it mm-hmm. as being sacred music, mm-hmm. um, sacred music in the in the in the sense that it's not currently part of uh, Sunday worship services, but sacred music in the sense that it was it marked grand occasions in some in yeah. some ways. Yeah, I think it was much more integrated. I, I I'd say in Venice, you know, they would have more. Um, festive and often, of course, that's associated with religion, but more festive occasions. And and you can imagine some of Monteverdi's music uh, with a great fanfare being perhaps outside or use of the space in San Marco, for example. Uh, You would have in Bach's time, it's a little more austere in the the Lutheran side of the of the the religious divide there. So it's a little more austere, but also the church was responsible to prov- he was responsible to provide music for the church. And so they'd say, okay, uh, Bach, you're my employee, and next Sunday we have to have another cantata. And then the Sunday after that, another cantata. Oh, and by the way, the next Sunday, another cantata. And so he was just forced to write music so quickly, and that's uh, the, the, his ability to write music of great depth is constantly, constantly amazing to me. Uh, that's one of the joys of, of studying Bach is that no matter... If you've performed a piece several times, each time there's another layer of meaning thinking, I can't believe I missed that the first four times I did this, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I, th- I think one of the things at least I associate it with, so this goes um, back to the um, Mesolithic era when I was in high school and in the high school choir, and we did a, uh, we did some Bach double choir mm. uh, pieces where one part of the choir would be in one space and yes, one part of the choir yes. would be in the other space, and the object was kind of to get it together, at right. least you know, at least rhythmically, but also yeah, in, yeah. in tone. Um, but I think I one of the things I remember is I don't understand how he wrote as much right. music as he wrote. I mean, he had to get up at eight o'clock in the morning, write music until five o'clock or whenever the light went down, yeah. and he had to be very quick. I mean, I the, I just don't see yeah. that level. Of, it's hard for me to imagine that level of production, even out of somebody like Mozart, who I think was supposed to write very quickly. Yes. Well, I, I, I think, too, that Bach must have been able to, as he was walking home from work, probably compose a cantata and and get these ideas because it is it is almost inhuman the way these geniuses, and that, you know, genius, genius word gets thrown around a lot, but I think the two you mentioned, Bach and Mozart, certainly uh, they had a, a number of wires that they had connected that somehow I haven't found yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of discouraging in a way. So, so uh, I mean, could you talk just a little bit about? Okay, this was music that was used in church. Mm -hmm. Um, It was also music that, if I'm understanding my history correctly, in some senses was part of court life. So you would perhaps hear some of that is this in the um, in the Elizabethan era, or or am I am I confusing my eras up here? Well, there uh, certainly the court was responsible uh, for. Composition that that started to change a little bit as you get later into the broken and certainly after the, the Reformation when things started to separate just a little bit more between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, uh, in the in the uh, English courts in the Italian courts even in Haydn for example, uh, was a part of the Esterhazy court, mm-hmm. and they hired the composers. They hired the people they wanted within the court, and of course the more prestigious the composer the more prestige brought to that particular court. So there were there was a time after Haydn was uh, famous and he had gone to England a few times and they revered him and tried to get him to stay in England. 
uh, but the Esterhazy court said, no, you need to come back here immediately because he was a, a it was great to be associated with a composer that renowned. So there was a time when he was under the employ of, of the Esterhazy Quartet, but he actually didn't really do much for Esterhazy. <laughs> he was doing the things that he wanted to do, but that was later in his life after he'd earned that reputation. Mozart, on the other hand, wanted to be a member of the court, but for some reason he was never able to break in. One of the reasons being that in that area of the, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire at that point, uh, if you weren't Italian, you weren't a real musician. I see. You had to be from Italy. It's sort of like, you know, you don't, you hold people that are not from a, your area in greater esteem than somebody who might live next door to and you, for this example. this has not changed at all no, in the really last hasn't. 500 years. It, isn't. it hasn't. Yeah. yeah. Well, see, Handel was in, in England for much of his life, and he had grown up in Germany, but he then was trained in Italy, so he had all of the tools, and of course England said, you ought to come here, uh-huh. and uh, they, they kept him here as, as part of that. So I want to fast forward to this century, mm-hmm. okay, skipping literally 500 years. Mm-hmm. Um, how does Baroque fit into, I don't want to say the repertoire, but how does Baroque fit into the um, the, the vocal curriculum, the musical curriculum yeah. now? What sort of... Sp- Place, does it? Well, it's it's interesting uh, that Baroque music. Of course, there there is so much music from that era. Um, a lot of composers were writing a lot of very good music, but in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, there became, I guess, a, a, what we call an early music movement. Uh-huh. And this movement, I remember, uh, this does date me, but that's that's okay. But I remember when in the 70s when the new recording came out of Messiah, of Handel's Messiah. And, of course, there was one way to do it at, at that point, <laughs> and if you didn't do it that way, then you really didn't know Messiah. And then a person named Christopher Hogwood, a conductor out of England, uh, came out, keyboard player, and they did it with what they call HIP, Historically Informed Performance. Uh-huh. And it used different instruments. They used uh, instruments that would have gut strings instead of steel strings. They used original instruments rather than the winds that we use today, which are much bigger and louder. They used different kinds of wind instruments, uh, either copies or, or originals from that era. And then they also, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but th- there's a lot that in Baroque music one does with articulation, with long notes and short notes, mm-hmm. with dissonances and consonances. Uh, with high notes uh, or low notes, long notes, short notes, all those things you use in different ways in Baroque music so that there's a a kind of a revelation of texture Uh that one hears with all of the different sort of points of sound compared to when there's a lot of loud sound with loud instruments. Right, which is, it's this is inaccurate in some ways, but it's kind of, you know, when you hear Beethoven's Ninth Mm -hmm. and it's just... So I'm going to borrow a term out of rock music. It's just this wall of sound. Mm-hmm. It's this incredible, mm-hmm. um, just just super deep, super rich um, kind of a, an experience. And Bach, at least unless it's on the, in the organ, I don't I don't hear him quite yeah. that same that same way. That's not a knock. It's just it's a, it's right. a difference in what the composer I no, think intends. No, I think that's exactly right. And if I can maybe make a culinary comparison here. Uh, if if you have a, a some food uh, maybe with a specific sauce, sometimes you have French sauces that are very complex and have mm-hmm. a lot of different layers of flavor, 
And that can be complex in a different way than if you maybe want to uh, just go get your fill at Chipotle, where you have a little bit more of a, a wall of flavor compared to the kind of very finely tuned uh -huh. spices and so on. Uh, it's, it's, both can be really good, but they're good in different ways. So in the, in the 70s and 80s, when you have this sort of resurgence of early music, how does that inform what you're teaching today and what yeah. our students are performing today? Right. So, for example, um, I do this uh, Bach cantata with the Odyssey Chamber Music uh, series each year. I think we've been doing that 10 or 11 years now. And the way we teach, or at least the way I teach that music, there's a certain clarity of texture. There's a, a great amount of time that is spent on articulations and on trying to achieve... Um, a transparency that one might not if we're doing the Mahler second or if we're going to do, um, you know, a, a choral work by Tchaikovsky or something, Rachmaninoff, where you have a different kind of, of, of flavor that you're trying to achieve with the music. So it's, uh, to me, the, 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 the goal as a conductor in, in Baroque music is to reveal the structure so that the audience maybe they don't intellectually understand what we're doing or how it's done, but there is a sense of a different effect. You know, I, I with the students, I often say, I can walk into a Gothic cathedral and I cannot tell you very much about architecture. Uh -huh. I cannot tell you what it is that makes me feel this way or what it is that makes me have this reaction to this particular architecture, but I know when I feel it. Mm -hmm. And... An audience should hear this Baroque music, and even if they haven't, you know, read all the Bach histories or they haven't studied Baroque music articulation with Arnoncourt, there is a sense of, I hear something, I feel something, I, 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 it's a different kind of effect. And we should be able to transmit that to an audience regardless if they're musicians or if they are just somebody who enjoys the arts and wants to experience a concert. <laughs> so, excuse me there. Um, so... How do students receive this? I mean, students are informed by lots and lots of music, mm -hmm. um, you know, these days, not just the classical repertoire, but, you know, I mean, a lot of what we hear currently and a lot of, mm -hmm. um, I guess, what I tend to call experimental music where, you know, you've got a line and then it's synthesized over and again with mm -hmm. all sorts of yeah. things. Yeah. So so how do students receive that? Because I... Well, I think one of the one of the nice developments here in the last twenty years, and of course, having been trained uh, uh, more than twenty years ago, <laughs> <laughs> that uh, I was very traditionally trained in the, in the Western European sort of common way that we were all trained at a time with opera and with classical oratorio and so on. Uh, but today's students, and particularly in today's world, you have to have a broader array of talents and 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 a, a vast kind of spread knowledge about different styles because there are so few people that can make it to the Metropolitan Opera and make right. a living doing that. So they may sing in a choir one day and then they, then they may do a singer-songwriter. I have a former student who's now making a living as a singer-songwriter. Uh, he at one time was an actor in musicals and he also performed at Chanticleer for six years and then he sings in various professional choirs around the country. They hire him for, for certain gigs. So he's the kind of musician that I think 
30 years ago didn't exist. Uh -huh. But that's the way they make their living now. So students actually are extremely open to this. Um, I, I must say I'm a little jaded because I get to pick 24 of the singers that I want for this this Odyssey <laughs> cantata, which is a real dream for me, a dream come true. Uh, but the kind of, uh, I think, clarity with a small group of 24 and, and rather accomplished singers, um, it, it's just we come out of there just feel, feeling so invigorated and so enthusiastic about what we're able to do and experience. You can really feel it and hear it. Uh, when I perform that cantata, I, I usually have the singers also standing sort of embedded within the orchestra and have the orchestra standing. So there's a, a real sense of, you know, if I have 20 or 24 in the orchestra and 24 in the choir, there's a real sense of these 40 people are working together. And all of this is like a a different thread that goes through this texture that we're weaving this tapestry mm -hmm. and we can sort of feel how we nestle next to the next thread of that. And I, and I've never sung or played in that particular way, but I do remember from my choir days that, that at least in choir, I worried a little less about making quote mistakes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because there were 60 people around me yeah. who wanted me to succeed so it was it was it was more of that it was more of that it was more of that ensemble right. kind of kind of a kind of an approach to things right and that's that certainly there is some comfort in in numbers um one can feel less exposed with that for sure right yeah um so talk to me a little bit about how you rehearse these sorts of these sorts of of things and then mm -hmm. i, I want to get to at some point a little bit about the the program in, in February that mm -hmm. folks okay. might be looking forward to. But mm -hmm. but talk to me a little bit about rehearsal, because yeah. I, I think all of us think about rehearsal from basically what we've seen in Hollywood films. And I <laughs> had this sense that it isn't always quite like that. Okay. Well, uh, you're talking specifically about the Baroque yes. performance. Yeah. For for example, with the cantata, and as I said, I, I, I have a dream job with that and that these are accomplished singers. So many of them read music so well that we don't spend much time with the notes. So there, you know, we there might be a passage here or a passage there that we say, no, that 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 sixth is a little bit under, you have to sing it higher or whatever. But most of the time we will say, uh, for let me give you an example of uh, this cantata that we're doing in February. There is a fugue, meaning that there's a a subject, a melody that's maybe three or four measures long. Mm -hmm. And we will have everybody sing that melody. And I'll say, okay, now take this note, sing this note long, and this next note short. The next two are short, and the next one after that is long with a crescendo and decrescendo, and then two short notes. I would rather explain it. I'd probably just sing it and say, do, I, do I was, it like this. I was going to say, yeah, you've already <laughs> lost me because my short-term memory has been exceeded there. Well, I, I <laughs> thought it might uh, save some aesthetics if I spoke it rather than sang it here. Uh -huh. but, <laughs> oh, come on now. <laughs> but yeah, so I would, I would basically model what I want. Mm -hmm. And then they would mark in their long and short notes or crescendos, decrescendos, uh, their articulations. And then I would say, now apply that to your part. Okay. And so, you know, if that fugue is made up of basically four phrases, a subject, a counter subject, uh, maybe a transition, and then a, a restatement of the, of the subject, uh, we would say apply that to every one of those units uh -huh. in here. And then we put it together, and then I'll stop and say, no, that uh, altos, you're a little bit too long in that third note of bar four. Uh -huh. uh, tenors, we need more crescendo and more decrescendo in that. And that, that would be the way we would try to get that, that reviewed. 
if I can, you know, once we get to the point where we're, we're fairly comfortable as a section, uh -huh. then I will mix up the singers. So a soprano will be by a bass, a, who will be by a tenor, who will be by an alto, and they can hear how their part interacts with the other part, which gives them, I, I mean, it, I, I know it sounds nerdy, but it's very thrilling when you start to feel how your part plays off of the other and how off you feed off of the other. Mm -hmm. So they start to experience that texture. Um, you, you start to feel what part you play within that overall texture. And it's, it's just it's really thrilling. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah. You know, we, we get big smiles on our face and we're looking at each other. We don't have to say anything. We just say, that was it. That's what we're trying to do. Uh -huh. And then I yell at them for not doing it in the other place. You know, that's. Yeah, well, I, I was going to say, there probably is a quality control issue. Oh, but I, I also yeah. think that, you know, when you are singing your part next to another person who is singing his or her part, but it's a different part. You know, there's a lot of, of uh, for want of a better term, there's a lot of musicianship there yes, in knowing how yes. to how to hold your part, but at the same time blend with the other voices. Is that absolutely? And 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 I think too. Again, it's I must say that, you know, these folks are, are sophisticated, so they have quite a bit of training in this area. Uh, but we we are also trying to teach independence, so that you, you know, there are times when we. <laughs> We lean on somebody beside us who maybe has better sight reading skills. But one of the things that certainly in education is that we're trying to teach people that, as one of my colleagues says, everybody needs to row equally. I don't want you riding in the canoe with everybody else rowing and you're just sort of acting like it. You've, yeah. got, you've got to pull your own weight through this. So that makes the, the ensemble much stronger when everybody assumes they have to be one of the leaders in the group. And when you said you get to pick so is this is this pick by audition? Do you have folks who are repeat offenders um, year after year who want to come back to either this particular uh, mm -hmm. this particular piece or this particular kind of music? Mm -hmm. Well, I I have the good fortune of being able to conduct university singers here at, at MU, and that is a highly audition group. Mm -hmm. So we have a, a three day audition period at the beginning of the semester, and. I choose 50 to 60 singers for that group. And then out of that 60 singers, I choose 24, uh, six from soprano, six alto, tenor, bass. And I try to match voices because by by the end of the semester, first semester, I know these voices pretty well. They've uh -huh. been selected. I know who is reading better than the others. And so I pick voices that I think will match together, but also have the musical skills that we can have maybe four rehearsals of the choir and then a couple with the orchestra and then we're on, on stage. So Wow, that so, sounds that sounds awfully fast. It is fast. But you know, <laughs> here again it's it's not just a matter of this performance, but I'm trying to teach folks what it's like to be in a in a professional ensemble. Mm -hmm. You come prepared and if you aren't prepared in the professional ensemble they say, Well, sorry, Goodbye. but I have hundred and fifty singers who will do this. Yes. So either you go and, and you do your job or it's it's uh, you you better look for another job someplace else. So it's also part of that. Here's how we prepare for a professional gig, and this is what you need to do at this level. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the the education okay. aspect. Yeah. So um, talk a little bit about what folks might hear on Valentine's Day, yeah. which I, th I have always thought it was an awesome day of the year to have a concert, um, which maybe is nerdy on, on my part. Um, but first off, it is on Valentine's Day, right? And it's at First Baptist Church? Yes, like First Baptist the Church. Yeah, okay. The, the yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I, 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 I shouldn't maybe say this, but I looked for cantatas that I thought would fit well. Um, Ayako, <laughs> uh, of course, is a 
is the head of, of Odyssey. And I asked, how big can my orchestra be this, this year? Uh-huh. And uh, I know I have 24 singers, but she said this year we could add uh, some winds. Sometimes I have just strings or just minimal winds. So I, I picked a piece called Gott ist mein König, God is my king. And it's uh, less religious in some. It was written uh, early in Bach's career when he was writing for the, the uh, city council in Mühlhausen. And the city council had, is moving out. The old ones are moving out. Uh-huh. The young ones are coming over, and, and it's a festive occasion. So there are three trumpets. Uh, there are timpani. There are two oboes and bassoon. There are two flutes and cello, and then a full complement of violins, viola, and bass, as well as organ. Uh, the, the idea is that... Uh, God's law is the same for the new ones coming in. It's going to be the same as it was for the old ones, and mm-hmm. it is the one constant in the court in the, the city of Mühlhausen. But, of course, the church and the state were very, very closely entwined, entwined still, yes. still as they are as they are now. Uh, but so there, there is a combination. It has some, some scripture, but also there is some... Uh, text that they're not quite sure who wrote it, but it's appropriate for the changing of guard in the city council. Uh-huh. But it's, it's festive. It's got wonderful music, uh, solos for bass, uh, tenor, soprano, and uh, an unusual aria for alto with trumpets uh, and strings, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a very exciting yeah. BWB 71 for all the Bach nerds out there who want to look it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, so is and is that the entire program? No, there'll be uh, an orchestral work. Um, I haven't really had any contact with that, so I can't tell you what that is. But there'll be a, another uh, orchestral work and then this, this cantata. The cantata is uh, maybe 25 minutes long, something uh-huh. like that. Um, I sort of can't conclude this interview without at least mentioning um, something that you were telling me before we started, <laughs> which is that you're moving, and there's a good and important reason that you're moving. So you want to talk a little bit about the music school's new digs? Yes, we are. Uh, I we are. Some of us are moving out of our current location on on campus to the new music building. This is phase one of the new music building, the Singfield Music Center. Uh, it's a very exciting time for us. We are uh, moving into the at the corner, the northeast quadrant of University and Hit Street, across from Hit Street Garage, uh, and we have just some extraordinarily beautiful and wonderful acoustic um, acoustical properties in some rehearsal space for both the instrumental ensemble, the band, the orchestra, and uh, the jazz bands, and then a wonderful recital choral rehearsal space. Uh, it's very exciting. We'll have offices, music offices in there. And so I'm in the process of undoing about 17 years of accumulation of not only uh, music and books, but uh, there's quite a bit of well, cleaning up I need to do before somebody else moves into that old say, office. Having done that myself not all that long ago, my phrase was back up the dumpster. I was on the That's third right. floor. I was just going to open the window and start pushing stuff out. Oh, it's amazing how it accumulates. I'll it tell really you. is. Yeah, so, but it's exciting for us. So does that mean that, that say, maybe a year from now, um, folks will no longer be performing at the Baptist Church in their sanctuary, that you're going to move it to the performance space in the new music building? That is actually uh, the performance Space is part of 
phase two. So we okay. do not have a concert hall in this. We still, of course, have Missouri Theater. Uh, we still will use the, the gracious churches in town, Campus Lutheran, First Baptist Church. Uh, many of the churches are so so welcoming and wonderful places to perform. And, of course, many of the groups perform at, at Missouri Theater. And, of course, I use Jesse when Choral Union performs each semester here as well, Jesse Auditorium. But it's an exciting time for us. Um, I have more windows in my office than I've ever had, and that's also <laughs> something that I'll look forward to, the I natural wonder. light. <laughs> yeah. oh, yes. Well, um, Dr. Crabb, thank you so much for coming today and giving us a little bit of insight into Baroque music and at least where you and your sweetie can go on the 14th of February and <laughs> hear do. some really gorgeous stuff. Please do. It, it, it'll be a really a, a lovely concert, um, and I, I would love to share the music with as many people as possible. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, This Lee. is Lee Wilkins, your co-host for Thinking Out Loud. Have a good evening.